welcome back to Eric Likes Animals. I'm Eric Mahan. Thank you guys so much for listening. If this is your first time listening, welcome to the podcast where we talk about environmental news. Every episode, we talk about a cool featured species, and we have a lot of fun with it. And for those returning, welcome back. We got a great episode for you guys today. So why don't we jump right into it with some environment news. An endangered bird in Australia has a cool new backpack, and it may just help save its species. The Plains Wanderer, which may be, by the way, a great name for this bird because, yes, it does live in the plains. And the reason it needs a backpack to save the species is because it wanders so much from scientists. Sometimes they don't even know where the hell they go. So, yeah, they're trying to save this species, and they really would like to know where the land is that they need to save. The plains wanderer, you see, has very specific needs. Too dry of grass, insects die, and they don't have a lot of nesting materials. But too wet of grass, the weeds overgrow, and the birds fly away to a location scientists have not yet discovered. And in comes the cool backpack. For you see, originally scientists would go out and track with a radio transmitter and try and figure out exactly where those birds were every single day, hoping to find the location they're at. So this small backpack is the ultimate scientist helper for understanding where these wanderers wander. Previous methods, like I said, only had a 12-week battery life and could only be followed by a transmitter. So scientists wouldn't always have data if they couldn't find it or if the antenna just wasn't participating you know it's pretty difficult to track them even if you have a little radio transmitter sometimes but the new snazzy backpack will actually send data to a satellite constantly updating scientists who now can simply stay at home not get all bit up by bugs and getting grass cuts all over themselves and enjoy a nice cup of coffee checking in on the plains wanderer figuring out exactly where it is And also, this is probably a great thing for the Plains Wanderer because originally, every single day, it would have a bunch of creepy people sitting in the bushes watching it, taking a poop, or eating. So, yeah, no one likes paparazzi following them all the time, so I'm sure the Plains Wanderer will enjoy its peace and quiet. Neophobia, a fear of new things. It may seem weird to think about, but we humans are not the only creatures that can get a phobia. Actually, it's not so weird for me because I actually had a pug growing up named George and he was afraid of my grandmother's kitchen floor. Didn't matter how many treats you put on that floor, it was a hard pass for him. He would walk on all kinds of surfaces and even some slipperier. But for whatever reason, that specific flooring, he just didn't like. So he either had, I don't know, slipophobia or tilephobia. So yeah, I have definitely witnessed an animal with a phobia. But it's very important for us to understand what these animal phobias could be, especially when it comes to conservation. Because when we start re-releasing these animals out into the wild, we need to understand the different phobias that may affect how their success, especially with newophobia, which is the fear of new things, if you've already forgotten. Luckily, there are people out there researching it. The newest study out there was looking into the Ballymines, a bird that is down to about 50 wild birds left in the wild. But luckily, zoos have been breeding them and keeping the total world population much higher. But if these birds can't transition back into the wild correctly, 
yeah, the program could be set back dramatically because obviously we want every single one going back in the wild to have great success. Now, the group that's looking into the Ballymina's bird in what kind of phobias it has, has already looked at corvids, a.k.a. crows and ravens, which actually did show that they had evidence of neophobia, but also realized that there was a social part to it as well. So doing the same research for the Ballymina's could set up release programs for much greater success on how to prepare these animals for their wild. Because it's never as easy as just opening up the crate and letting out the animal, okay? (laughs) Yeah, that's the thing that they show on TV, but there's a lot of effort and work that goes into it and actually a lot of studying to do to make sure that animal has the greatest success. Going back to the study. They looked at a captive group and started doing a lot of, well, arts and crafts, making new and weird colored things with weird textures and really tried to make sure that whatever they created was something that there was no way the Valley Miners have seen them before. And then what they would do is they would set them around like their food or water dish and study how they would react to it. Interestingly enough, the juveniles of the Valley Miners would actually go closer to the things much quicker than the adults, kind of like our own children, okay? (laughs) Everything is so new to them that it's not kind of ingrained in their head that this specific thing is the new thing when they're still learning about the world and the environment and figuring out exactly what everything is. They're more likely to go and investigate things quicker than the adults where they've kind of been around more often and they're all sudden like, I've been on this earth for 10 years and I don't know what the hell that thing is. I'm not going near it. From that, they noticed that being in groups, especially when they're juveniles, that the adults would get over whatever weird thing was in there way quicker. The other thing that they noted was that when they were in a mixed species habitat, for instance, if they put this weird new thing near a food dish and there was another bird species in that habitat that was considered a competitor for the same food the Ballymina would go after, the Ballymina would get over their fears much quicker and go after the food for fear of losing, well, delicious snacks. But when they had another bird species that wouldn't normally go after the food, it went back to the normal time that it took if they were just by themselves. Which makes you think, maybe this could work for people. You know, have a whole group of strangers on one side of the room, have on the other side of the room a whole collection of delicious pizzas, and in the middle, a pit of spiders. And if they don't get over the sphere of spiders and get on over to the pizza, well, they lose out on delicious pizza. And then finally, a shorter but a very positive story. Rewilding in Europe is working. All right, this is great news. Many different species in Europe, thanks to the protection improvements in the way we view wildlife, have helped rebound a number of species, many of which are now officially starting to be considered thriving. Gray wolves, Eurasian beavers, gray seals, European bison, and a couple others had had some of the strongest rebounds since the programs began. With the gray wolf population, for example, from 1965 to 2016 have rebound by 1,800 percent. 
Now, there is still much work to be done, and at this point, no population is truly safe, but seeing these successes and using them to help set up new programs, because obviously, if something didn't work with one of these programs, maybe you won't do it with starting a new program. You know, doing that whole thing of learning what doesn't work. And that's pretty much the whole story. Like I said, it was pretty short, but hey, we need to hear all those good conservation wins. And that is your environment news. So, moving on to our featured species. I decided to choose something based on the fact that I have been watching the Lord of the Rings show, The Rings of Power on Amazon, pretty much as soon as it comes out. So, I decided that today's animals was not random. I do sometimes have a plan. And this animal has something in common with a character in one of Tolkien's books, The Hobbit. In fact, this creature is the giant girdled lizard. Besides the fact that this animal does look possibly like a creature from one of Tolkien's books, the reason I chose this animal is because the animal's genus of other similar lizards has the same name as one of Tolkien's characters, and that character is Smaug. Yep, the genus of an entire group is named Smaug, like the dragon that hoarded over the gold in the Lonely Mountain in The Hobbit. Now, you may be considering sort of chicken-egg scenario here of this genus versus Tolkien's dragon. What came first, the dragon that inspired the genus or the genus inspired the dragon? Well, if you don't know Tolkien, he, of course, would be the person to create the name. He wouldn't borrow something to name his dragon. He likes to be original. So, it was the genus that took the name from the dragon. In fact, this genus was only recently created in 2011 when scientists decided that they would need to create a couple more genuses in the group that is commonly referred to as girdle lizards, which contains about 81 species, which are all armor-plated and found in sub-Sahara Africa. The genus Smaug, however, is only eight species all, with very mythical dragon-like looks to them, Most likely why a dragon was used to name for this specific genus, this genus is also home to the largest of all the girdled lizards. And if you haven't figured it out yet, yes, it's the giant girdled lizard. However, it is nowhere near the size of Smaug himself from Tolkien's stories. The giant girdled lizard can be as long as 7.9 to 13.8 inches or 20 to 35 centimeters long on average, but they did find one of the biggest ones being about 15.7 inches or 40 centimeters long, and they can live up to 25 years. The giant girdle lizard actually has another name, the sun gazer, due to the way that it likes to sit or, as we refer to it, basking in the sun because they are cold-blooded and need a little help to get their muscles going. So, the reason why it's called the sun gazer is how it sits to soak up this sun is it lays kind of flat but it uses its front arms and kind of pushes itself up extending its front arms all the way out and almost looks like they're gazing into the sun for you yogis out there basically it's upward facing dog i myself am not a yogi and i did have to look that up now These poor guys definitely need a pair of sunglasses because they pretty much do stare right into the sun to get nice and warm. That way they can go out and get some delicious food. The majority of their diet is insects. For adults, mainly being beetles and the young going after more smaller insects like ants, for example. They live in a 
extremely small area of the world, only living in South Africa and not even the whole country even. They have only been noted to be found in about three provinces in southern part of South Africa. This is because of it having a very specific habitat type, and that is they live in an open grassland or inland plateau called the high veld grasslands, and they can't live anywhere else. They have a very specific sun, soil, climate, foliage, and diet that they need, all only found really in that one location. As for the description of the giant girdled lizard, besides it looking like a freaking dragon, and you need to check them out. So make sure you use the old Google machine after you listen to the podcast. The young will have a more intense pattern than the adults, normally having reddish brown bars and there being some yellow and black bands as well. Also having a little reddish orange scales on their tail. When they get older, the colors normally fade and will normally have an overall tan color with shades of yellow. Normally, their underbelly and under the chin are more yellow, and the whole body of the lizard has a mix of thick-looking scales as well as some spines coming out. Nowhere near as intense, however, as our good friend the thorny devil, which we talked about before, but at first glance, it is still pretty intense. Also, at first glance, you may notice that there's really not too much of a difference between adult males and adult females. They look the same and have pretty much similar sizes. The males, however, do have one thing different, and that is they have raised scales on their forearms, whereas the females do not. But both, however, have very strong arms and legs with very sharp claws designed to do one very important thing, dig. Unlike most of its relatives that seek shelter under rocks, there's not many rocks in <laughs> up in that open field habitat, so they will have to dig burrows to hide in some of which have been noted to be about 1.3 feet or 0.396 meters deep and 6 feet or 1.8 meters long. When they are out during the day, they are soaking up that sun, but they don't, however, stray too far from their burrows in case danger is near. The main predators of the giant girl lizards are birds of prey, large reptiles, snakes, jackals, foxes, honey badgers, and mongooses. So, say for example, a honey badger is stalking the girdle lizard, as soon as it sees or senses it nearby, they're going to hitch it right to their burrow. But, say since, well, it's a honey badger and it starts trying to dig it out, the girdle lizard will then use its spiny little tail and start trying to whack it in the face to deter it from coming any further. Which, let's be real, probably isn't going to do too much to a honey badger, since remember, honey badger don't care. And... Their only other defense is obviously going further into the tunnel and trying to escape whatever is digging after it. And unfortunately, normally, they're not alone. So the honey badger may be determined to come after it since it's not normally just one lizard. Because this lizard species, uniquely enough, actually lives in colonies. Which is unlike many other lizard species. Now the colonies themselves can be made up of two to six individuals. And they really kind of almost look a little bit like a lizard version of a prairie dog town. Also, normally these groups are not made of an actual family member, but normally a male with other females and their offspring depending on the time of year. And the females will not always stay there. They're constantly moving between colonies 
with really the only permanent resident being the male. In fact, even the juveniles will decide to wander between different colonies as they grow. It also has been noted that normally if there's two males in a so-called colony area, they will normally have a line drawn in the sand, but that's really just for them. The actual colony members, like the females and the juveniles, they will transfer between the two all the time without really too much of a hassle. Now, if you're thinking all this moving around is confusing with the females and the young just constantly moving between colonies, you may be thinking perhaps it's based on breeding. Well, not exactly, because you see, the giant girl lizard females are not actually able to breed every year, which is probably why the males try to have multiple females around and live in colonies, because a female may only be ready to breed every two to three years. Their breeding season starts in the spring, and normally goes through summer and ends normally in autumn before winter. Because these guys do go through a brumation or sort of a slow down period during the colder winter months. However, don't forget if you live in the northern hemisphere, they are down in the southern hemisphere. So our winter is their summer. So December through February is normally our cold times here is actually their warm time, aka their breeding time. If the female is ready to breed, the male of the area is the one she will normally breed with. And in a couple months, she will give birth to about one to two babies. Notice I didn't say eggs. They are actually live birth lizards. They are pretty independent once they are born. And like the females may stay or may go. It's kind of a fairly free spirit uh, lizard sort of thing. But in about five years, however, they will reach sexual maturity. And if they are males, it's time to buckle down and start your own colony or take over another. But if you're a female, the free traveling is still a go. So you will travel around, breed every so often, and see where life takes you. Unfortunately, however, with the female only being able to breed every two to three years and only giving birth to about one to two young, These are the reasons why most scientists and other people are so worried about the survival of the giant girdled lizard. The IUCN Red List has them listed as vulnerable, and population decreasing with the current total numbers being about 677,000, which seems like a lot, but the problem here is they are so centralized in that one area. Yes, it is a natural range for those animals. It's not like they... The range itself has shrunk that much for them, but whenever you have an animal that is so specific in their location or, say, food, that just makes them that much more vulnerable. And those are normally the animals that actually go extinct first, aka giant pandas. Only eating bamboo and only living in those very specific locations, that's one of the reasons why they're so endangered. And if you're still not fully grasping the fear of why, even though the numbers may seem good, but we're so concerned of them only being found in one area, let me kind of describe it in a different way, especially because animals on land, most of us are like, well, why can't they just move over? I know that this is a very specific location, but heck, if the whole area is on fire, they'll just move somewhere else. Not exactly. The best way I can describe it is think of an island. 
and pretend for a second there is a species of lizard, and this is the only location in the world this specific species is found. If something were to happen to that island, boom, there goes the entire population. So in this case, if something happens to that very specific plateau, even though, yes, it's surrounded by other land, it is the same concept of something happening to an island because for the giant girdled lizard, they are pretty much living on an island. And that's what the problem is when a species is so dedicated to such a specific location or for other animals, food. Meaning, if a hurricane or a forest fire were to come through and wipe out the entire location, that entire species could go extinct within a blink of an eye. Now, you may say to yourself, well, that sucks, but it's nature. Like, that's a natural disaster, you just said. Should we really get involved with that? Why should we stop it? That is an extremely ethical question. Because if it's naturally going to happen, we really shouldn't mess with it. For example, you should not stop a cougar from eating a deer. It's nature. It needs to happen that way. But also, would that hurricane have happened or be as intense if it wasn't for the cause of global climate change? So yes, it may be a natural disaster, but is it happening more frequently or more intensely because of us? Or for example, forest fires, which is the more likely natural disaster for the giant girdle lizard being in South Africa area instead of being on an island somewhere where a big tsunami could wipe you out. Forest fires, a much more highly likely scenario. So when it comes to forest fires, the area is becoming drier due to global climate change. We're reworking where rivers and different water sources are going, making places drier, causing bigger, more intense forest fires. So yes, it could be a naturally occurring forest fire, but is it more intense or more disastrous because of us? And that is why it's such an ethical question for most conservationists is, is this something that would have naturally happened if we weren't here? Or because we are here, it still would have happened no matter what, but we made it a whole bunch worse than it should be. And that animal shouldn't suffer for it. Because we have seen a species go extinct now already due to solely global climate change. And of course, like I've been warning, it is of course an animal with a very specific, very small habitat range. The Bramble K. Malomi is the first animal listed to be extinct due to global climate change. This small rodent lived on a tiny island that only sat about 10 feet above the ocean level. And due to the high frequency of storms, which brought higher tides due to the warmer waters brought on by global climate change, the ocean water salted this island to a point that the plants died off and the little bramble was left with no plants or food or shelter, thus causing it to be extinct. Which is something we don't want to happen to the giant girdled lizard. But you add in the threat of something that can destroy a whole region, like I said, a fire due to the increased heat waves or lack of rain in some regions, plus the normal habitat destruction going on like agriculture, human population development, and of course, the big one for these guys, illegal trapping for the pet trade. Even with 677,000 animals, 
in the end, that's not a lot. Luckily, people have started working on it by, well, educating people on how this lizard is very delicate and does not want to be your pet. And on the flip side of this, they are trying out captive breeding in different facilities with certified animal care professionals in zoos and other breeding facilities. Because it's very different in those places than in your home, especially when when you bring it home, you're actually causing the destruction of the species as a whole to survive. Especially since the giant girdle lizard or sun gazer in the pet tray due to bad breeding in captivity is then most likely taken from the wild. So if you go to, say, a reptile expo or a pet store and you see a sun gazer or giant girdle lizard there, it most likely was taken from the wild. And there's just way easier and just as cool lizards you can choose instead. Please leave the vulnerable ones alone. In fact, one of the big things they are doing is they're actually collecting DNA from giant girdle lizard populations in the wild so they can help identify if the ones that they all of a sudden find in captivity is an animal that they already know and can prove that it was taken from the wild. And proof is something they need from a legal sense to actually be able to put a stop to the illegal trafficking because a lot of time people will just claim that they always had the animal or they got it from a breeder, which a lot of times, like I said, they did it. The other big thing they are doing, of course, is trying to protect the habitat and buy up and block construction and agriculture in their remaining habitat, either through the government or private trust. Especially since they have such a specific habitat need, it either has to be there or under professional care. Those are really the only two options. It can't just move somewhere else and hope that the population will survive. No, they are very specific with their soil, with their humidity, all that sort of stuff. So saving that one plot of land that they only can survive in, pretty important. Because even though they have the genus name Smaug, a dragon that took away homes from dwarves, we would be the one taking away the homes of this Smaug. The amazing giant girdle lizard. show thank you guys so much for listening i hope you enjoyed hearing about the amazing giant girdle lizard or sun gazer as always make sure to check me out on my facebook page or twitter page links will be provided below and if you have any questions or just want to say hi you can always reach me at ericlikesanimals at gmail.com and if you like the episode or show in general please make sure you rate it and share it that really helps build the fan base and helps get the podcast out there i really do appreciate it Anyway, that's it for me. Once again, thank you so much for listening. And just remember, don't be a dick and act like Smaug from The Hobbit, but protect the Smaug of our real world. The amazing giant girdle lizard. See ya.